Well, thank you, worship team. And once again, good morning, everyone. It's great to see people uh, checking in here, signing in and saying hello. Um, Thanks for for joining us this morning. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, uh, we have something exciting that happened the past couple days. We got snow. I love the snow. But you know what? I, uh, I, think, I've, uh, I think I've climatized uh, to this, uh, in, in this province, BC. For those of you who don't know, I'm from Ontario. And although I, enjoy, I really enjoyed the snow, I did not enjoy the cold. <laughs> There's been some, uh, this, this past week has been brutal with the wind and the cold and the drafts. Didn't enjoy that. But I do enjoy seeing some snow on the, uh, on the ground. Hey, just one thing before I jump into my message this morning. Um, as you know, a few weeks ago, a month ago, I can't remember when, I stood before you and read a letter to the congregation from the elders and myself, and we talked about how we're working through some leadership issues, um, and I just want to let you know that it looks like we're about weeks away from, we don't have any dates set yet, but it looks like we're weeks away from announcing uh, just some upcoming important meetings where we can have greater discussion with uh, our leadership uh, circles and uh, the congregation. So stay tuned in the next week or two, and we'll be hopefully announcing something more concrete. And I just want to say that I'm just, I'm seeing how the Lord's hand has been involved in this whole process. I'm looking forward to what the Lord's going to do through Grace Church. I'm looking forward to the future uh, of Grace Church. And um, stay tuned in the coming weeks for some more um, updates on what we're going to be doing next and when those meetings are going to take place. So let me start this message by, by asking a few questions. Have you ever wondered how two people can review the same evidence about Jesus, the same facts about Jesus, but come to two very different conclusions about who he is? You ever wonder how some people can believe in Jesus and other people don't believe in Jesus after reviewing, reviewing the same evidence? Have you ever wondered why some claim they believe in Jesus, but they keep it a secret? They don't tell anybody. What's up with that? Those are the questions this morning that we're going to be asking and uh, jumping into and delving into. But before we get there, I just want to remind you that we are uh, preaching today, continuing on through our series in the Gospel of John. And just as a reminder, John was written by John, a disciple of Jesus, an eyewitness to everything Jesus said and did during his public ministry on earth. And John's purpose in writing the Gospel was so that we would come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the one who... Uh, saves us from our sins, and brings us back into right relationship with God. Uh, John has, so far in the book of John, we reviewed a whole bunch of miracles, which we'll talk about uh, in a moment. And uh, we've also seen that John has summarized the the bold, audacious, incredible, earth-shattering claims that Jesus made about himself, the fact that he is deity, that he is God. The last time we were in the book of John, which I think was three weeks ago, we, we ended with a passage where Jesus was predicting his death and he was predicting also Satan's defeat. The passage today, we're going to continue on the latter portion of John chapter 12, where John is closing a very important section of the book of John before he moves on to a different section in the book of John. And we're going to read from John 12, verse 37 to 50. Uh, although I'm going to be focusing on primarily on verses 37 to 43. And I'm just going to invite you to stand as you read God's word Uh, This morning, starting at verse 37 of John chapter 12. It says this, Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. That's an absolutely fascinating statement. We'll be talking about that later. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. 
who lived approximately 700 years before Jesus. He said, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on the, at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. We'll end it there. So again, let me just uh, remind you the three questions uh, that we're going to be dealing with today. The first is this, um, and I asked them differently at the beginning, but anyways, the first is this. How is, how is it that some still didn't believe in Jesus after seeing all the miracles that were happening in his ministry right before their eyes? How is it that some still didn't believe in Jesus? Number two, uh, how is God involved in blinding eyes and hardening hearts? Because John seems to be quoting Isaiah, and that's what seems to be happening here. And number three, what's up with leaders believing, but keeping it a secret? Is that acceptable? Okay, first, let's talk about the first question. Again, the first question is this. How is it that some still didn't believe in Jesus? Verse 37 says this. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. And to me, that is just an incredible statement. John did not include all of the miracles of Jesus, but he did include some. He was picky and, uh, with what uh, miracles he decided to include in his gospel. And I just want to just list the ones that he included in his gospel, uh, understanding that this is not an exhaustive list. Jesus, he recorded the fact that Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. He healed a boy who had this deathly fever. He healed a man who had been disabled for 38 years. And by the way, uh, I, I noticed that this man, again, was 38 years. I'm 37, so um, I can't imagine being, like this guy was disabled for longer than I've been alive. Imagine being disabled for your entire life and this man comes by and he, he looks at you and says, uh, stand up, pick up, or pick up your mat and walk and you're healed just by a few words. That's what Jesus did. He fed a crowd of 5,000 people with, five, with only five loaves of bread and two fish, which is pretty much enough maybe for two families, depending on the size. But he, he multiplies that in a miraculous way to feed a crowd. He walks on water. He heals a man who was born blind. And the most recent miracle, as recorded in the Gospel of John, he raises buddy Lazarus, who had been dead uh, in the grave, in the tomb, dead for four days by simply shouting out three words, Lazarus, come out. And here Lazarus, after being dead for four days, he rises from the dead. And even after seeing all these miracles, even after seeing Lazarus walk uh, among them, they still would not believe in Jesus. Fascinating. 
What's up with that? Well, you know, people in Jesus' day were no different than people in our day. We see evidence of God at work all around us, yet we still don't believe. I think one of the most incredible miracles that we can observe for me, the most, one of the most meaningful experiences for me in my life was witnessing my first child being born. I think you're, when you're witnessing your first child being born, you're actually observing, you're, you're seeing multiple miracles taking place all at the same time. And I remember saying to myself, how can anybody not believe in a God after seeing that? Even creation, it's amazing how creation is so intricately designed and there's so many ecosystems that are in perfect balance. The world has not flung out of orbit. Uh, amazing. It must point to a God that's looking after us. I think of how God provides for us in miraculous ways. Just the other week, I, I noticed that there was a paper cut on my finger. And I don't know how I got it, but I, I, I observed my finger. Just think about this for a second. I observed my finger healing itself. My finger healed itself over a matter of days and weeks. That is miraculous. That is incredible. There must be an intelligent designer that created our bodies that can do these miraculous things. But even though there's evidence all around us that there is a God, that he's good, and all the rest, people will still, no matter what evidence they have in front of them, they still will not believe. You know, a few weeks ago, I, uh, I organized just a really simple games night with a family member in Ontario, and he invited his friend who I met for the first time that night. We were playing Risk. It's a lot of fun. I'm not sure if you ever played Risk before. But anyways, we played a couple of rounds of Risk online, and it was great. And uh, some, somehow, in some fashion, it was discovered that um, the man, one of the men, one of the people I was playing with, he happened to be a 33-degree mason. And uh, so we have here a 33-degree mason and a pastor in the same room. Uh, you figure something's going to happen where you might talk about religious matters, and that's what happened. <laughs> I had no intention about talking about religious matters. My intention was just to play Risk, but we ended up getting to a religious conversation after the game was over, which was great. I loved it. I loved the opportunity to pick his brain, and he was able to pick my brain. And I really felt there was some really good dialogue happening, some respectful conversation back and forth. I think uh, I've learned something from, uh, from him, and I hope that he's learned something from me. And if we ever get the opportunity to talk again, I'd love to pick his brain more to learn more. I think we have a lot to learn from each other. But there was one thing that struck me about this conversation. Uh, what I found interesting was that when I was sharing evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, he seemed to be kind of defensive about that, and he seemed to kind of want to put that off. Now, in fairness, maybe it's because we didn't have a relationship and maybe I wasn't approaching it in the right way. I don't know. But there just seemed to be a defensiveness about the evidence that I was presenting. And this is what I've observed over life, over many years, and talking with people of different religious positions. At the end of the day, evidence doesn't cut it when it comes to putting uh, your belief in Jesus. What it takes to put your faith in Jesus is that is you need a supernatural move of the Spirit to put your faith in Jesus. It takes faith to believe in Jesus. And what I've discovered throughout life is that it doesn't matter if you have all your facts straight, if you have all your, your logical, biblical arguments in a, in a if, you have, if, you, if you have all your ducks in a row, theologically speaking, if you have the best... Um, um, apologetic arguments, if you, have, you can quote the best scientists, the best archaeologists, the best philosophers that support biblical claims, you could have the most logical, most reasoned, most 
factual scientific arguments on the planet, and yet people, even though those things are, are good in and of themselves, people will not believe because of facts alone. It takes a supernatural move of the Spirit for someone to put their faith in Jesus. Facts won't cut it. They help, but they don't cut it. And so the question I have is, is God calling you? God needs to call you to faith in Jesus. Is he calling you? Now, you know, whenever I log online here, I see there's a number of people that are logged in uh, into the service. Um, I never know who's watching, and there might be someone out there who might, you might consider yourself a skeptic. And if you're a skeptic, I'm so glad you're here. Um, and maybe if you're a secret skeptic, uh, I'm glad you're here either way. But I want to ask you, skeptic, um, um, would you, will you consider the evidence, the fact that there is a God, the fact that he loves us, the fact that he sent the son Jesus and that he actually did rise from the dead? Let me ask you a, a different question, but it's very much the same. Will you really consider the evidence? Will you really consider the evidence? And whether there's someone out there who's watching, maybe you, maybe you consider yourself a skeptic, maybe you don't consider yourself a skeptic, whoever you are, maybe there's someone out there who's on the fence when it comes to putting their faith in Jesus. Uh, well, let me ask you this. Will you be like those in John's gospel? You see evidence of, of God's fingerprint all over your life and all over the world. And will you be like the people in John's gospel who saw the evidence but still rejected Jesus? Or will you hear God's voice and will you believe in him? Will you, will you trust in him? Will you hear God's spirit speaking to your mind, your heart? And will you respond to him in faith? At this point, uh, I'm going to invite one of our elders to come up. He has a really interesting testimony that I've invited him to share, just a part of his testimony of how he had this unique faith experience that helped him with the Lord, which, which helped him put his faith uh, in, in Jesus. And his name is Tony. Tony Richardson's been an, uh, an elder, was part of the church for, what, maybe five-ish years? Been at the church for 15, maybe, 12, give or take a few years. And anyways, Tony, go ahead and share part of your story. Good morning, Grace Church. I'm so glad to be here sharing with you today. So that I wouldn't stay too long, I wrote everything down so I would remember the words I wanted to say. In March 1981, in the space of just eight days, Jesus changed my life dramatically twice. My dad had a tough childhood. As an adult, he dealt with his stress by drinking. And on many occasions, his drinking ended up in some in our family becoming the focus of his anger. Eventually, my dad's drinking resulted in my parents' divorce when I was around 10 years old. After my parents' divorce, I felt empty and abandoned. My life became increasingly centered on alcohol and drugs. During this time, my mother became a Christian, and she began attending a local church. One day, when I was 14 years old, I got a call from the youth pastor there. His name was Chris, my mom's church. He was inviting me to a Friday evening youth event. I knew immediately why he was calling and not wanting to embarrass my mother because I loved her dearly and I still do. I agreed to attend the youth meeting. I had it all worked out in my head how the evening would go. I would go to the meeting, listen politely to the brainwashing that was happening, and then go home to bloody tell my mother to mind her own business because those religious freaks were just like my dad had described. That was my plan. Well, God had a different plan for the how the evening would play out. After the meeting was over, 
Chris was going to drive me home just as soon as he had finished cleaning up. So I waited. After the last youth member left, Chris sat down with me and proceeded to tell me the story of how he met Jesus as a young adult. And as the time passed, I remember thinking, wow, this guy was really messed up, and now he seems normal. Well, a small, small part of me wanted to make a wisecrack to kind of ease the tension I was feeling in my spirit. At that moment, God shut my mouth and he opened my ears so that I would hear everything that I needed to hear. And those who know me know that I'm seldom at a loss for words. But at that time, I was. After Chris finished talking, he asked me the most important question that I've ever been asked in my entire life, even right up to this very moment. Chris asked me, Tony, would you like to invite Jesus into your heart? Still not being able to utter a word, all I could do was nod. So Chris asked me to repeat a prayer after him. He started with, Dear Jesus. And at that very moment, my mouth was opened. And I prayed for the very first time in my life. I don't remember it being a very long prayer. But after I said amen, I knew something was immediately different. I felt as if a huge weight had been lifted off my chest. And for the first time that I can recall, I felt that the future was going to be okay. This was the first dramatic change that Jesus made in my life. In an instant, I went from heading towards a life without God to looking forward to heaven with Jesus. So Chris gave me a Bible and he took me home and he promised that we'd meet for lunch the very next Saturday. When we got together for lunch at the local white spot in White Rock, I, this time I was eager to talk to him. After some brief chatter, Chris asked me how my week had gone. I told him it was okay, except for one thing that was really bothering me. Because of my social group, it had become very normal for me to swear about everything. And I had, um, I used to use the Lord's name in vain to punctuate my sentences. I explained to Chris that ever since that previous Saturday evening, whenever I cursed, I felt real bad. I asked Chris why I was feeling so bad about swearing, and he explained that because I had invited Jesus into my heart, the Holy Spirit was now living in me to help me guide me to live according to God's will. So I said, Chris, you got to help me. I don't want to feel bad like this anymore. What can I do? He said that we can pray right now for God to break that habit. So right there in that booth, in the White Rock restaurant in White Rock, Chris prayed. He simply asked that God would take away this bad habit so that I would no longer use God's name as a curse word. Afterwards, we finished our lunch, and Chris dropped me off at my house. Four days later, I called Chris with some exciting news. I could hardly believe it myself, but it was true. I had not used one single curse word since that lunch on Saturday. After seven years of having a very foul language, it was gone. And this was the second dramatic change that Jesus made in my life. So when I think back on that time in my life, Paul's words in 1 Timothy resonate strongly in my memory. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So now I stand before everyone today with thankfulness that Jesus forgave my sins and gave me the gift of eternal life. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Tony. Hopefully you never took any of my notes. I'm sure you didn't. But uh, <laughs> no, I love that story, Tony, because, um, you know, and, and that, that was a perfect testimony because it illustrates the fact that 
the Holy Spirit was truly involved in Tony's life and helping him to come to faith in him. Okay, so uh, the next question that leads us to our second question of the day, and it's this. How is God involved in blinding eyes and hardening hearts? Uh, John, he's quoting the uh, prophet Isaiah when he says in verse 40, I'm just going to read that again for you. It says this, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. And so when it comes to people perhaps not choosing to follow Christ, uh, do we blame God for that? Is, is God the bad guy when people harden their hearts? Well, I want to read to you a quote from a commentary, one of the commentaries that, uh, that I, like to, um, I like to read. And I found this quote to be very helpful. I'm going to read this for you. It says this, God's decision to blind the eyes of unbelieving Israel is inseparably entwined with their own decision not to believe. God does not harden the hearts of people against their will, but his action is a necessary part of the consequences that flow from their decisions. Let me read that again. God's decision to blind the eyes of unbelieving Israel is inseparably entwined with their own decision not to believe. God does not harden the hearts of people against their will, but his action is a necessary part of the consequences that flow from their decisions. So it seems to indicate that, uh, scripture seems to indicate that people make their own decisions and and God accepts the decisions they make. And he he continues to, uh, to he gives them up to their own choices. There's, a, there's an incredible example in the Old Testament. Uh, if you look at the life of Pharaoh, um, if you don't know, the Israelites in the Old Testament were once enslaved uh, among a people called the Egyptians. And God sent Moses to Pharaoh to uh, basically free his people, Israel, out of slavery, out of Egypt. And yet, and it's interesting, if you look at the story in Exodus, you'll, you'll see different verses that say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but there's other verses that say that Pharaoh, <clears throat> excuse me, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so let me just read to you just four verses in the book of Exodus. Exodus 4, verse 21, God speaking to Moses, and he says this, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then in verse 15 of chapter 8, after uh, a plague had came and there was relief from the plague, uh, Exodus 8 verse 15 says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. And so it looks like Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. You fast forward a few verses over to verse 32 in the same chapter, chapter 8. Another plague hit. There was relief. And then what happened next? But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. He hardened his own heart. And then chapter 9, verse 12, but the Lord, it says, now hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. So it seems like God is confirming the decisions people make in their hearts, and he uses it for his own glory. There's another passage that comes to mind that I think is very helpful to help summarize the role that Satan plays in all this, the role that we play as people in all this and the role that God plays in this. And it's a passage that's referring to the end times, but I find it very helpful. It's from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 and 12. I'll just go ahead and read that for you. It says, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are 
perishing. So Satan, we see, is involved in lies and, and deception. And then it says they perish, the people perish, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In other words, the people make their own decisions to refuse the truth. Verse 11, so what's God's role in all this? Verse 11, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So just to summarize, it seems like Satan is involved, but it doesn't seem like Satan is involved in deceiving, that people are responsible for their own choices that they make. And number three, that God gives them over to their choices. And so just a few points of application here. Um, Satan, he's involved in deceiving. It's so, it's so important for us to be aware of that. He is, he, his mission, his MO is to steal and kill and destroy. And in fact, scripture says that Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. In other words, he can make lies and deception seem um, attractive and seem right and good. And we need to be aware of that, that he's out to deceive you, to take you away from God, to make sure that you don't believe in him. Uh, the other thing we need to be aware of is that every human is accountable to God. You are responsible to God whether you choose to follow him or not. God says that we are all without excuse. There's enough evidence in the world around us that we are without excuse when it comes to whether we choose to follow him or not. And thirdly, if, if God is involved in supernaturally opening up the eyes, our eyes, our spiritual eyes, and, and our hearts to see him, pray that God would open up your, your, the eyes of your heart to, to see him for who he truly is, to put your trust in him. Pray also that God would open up the the, 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 the hearts and the eyes of those around us, our friends and our family and those we interact with. Pray that God would supernaturally, through his spirit, open the eyes of people around us to see Jesus for who he is and to trust in him as the way, the truth, and the life. Let's move on to the third and final question for today. What's up with leaders believing but keeping it a secret? What's up with that? Let me read to you verse 42 and 43. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. So what was going on here? Now, I don't know if these leaders were religious leaders or they were people of influence uh, who were not religious leaders, probably both. But what was happening here is they were afraid to publicly associate with Jesus, uh, with their faith in him, because they were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. Uh, if they were religious leaders, maybe that involved losing their livelihood. If they weren't a religious leader, maybe it would have involved uh, losing maybe business from, uh, from their, their, their fellow people. But the, the principle here that John points at is that whatever the case, they loved pr the praise of men over God. In other words, they were more concerned about what people thought of them than what God thought of them. So to state the question a little more uh, simply, should your faith in Jesus be kept a secret? Should your faith in Jesus be kept a secret? Well, did Jesus say anything about this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Yes, he did. He said, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And so to answer that question, should your faith in Jesus be kept a secret? The answer is no, no. 
To be honest with you, I'm not sure if there is such a thing as a secret Christian. I'm not sure if that's a genuine, I'm not sure if that's a genuine um, act of faith to, to claim that you believe in Jesus yet keep it a secret. Now I should clarify, I should clarify that that does not mean we, uh, we should be um, not wise. We need to be wise in our relationship with Jesus. I think if you're in a country where there's severe persecution and your life is on the line, there's no need to have a big neon flashing light that says, hey, there's Christians in here, come and kill us. You don't need to do that. But I think in moments where you're oppressed, even if it does mean persecution, I think we'll be, we should be proud to associate with Jesus. We can't be ashamed of him. It's not appropriate to believe in Jesus, yet keep it a secret. You know what it's like? It's kind of like, it's kind of like telling your spouse, I love you. I'm going to be with you to death do us part. Uh, there's no one else in the world but you. And then you leave your house. You take your wedding ring off. You go into public. And someone asks you if you're married, and you say no. And they say, well, what about the spouse you're living with? Oh, who's that? What do you mean? Oh, that's just my friend. What do you think, what do you think your spouse would think of you? Uh, how do you think that would go? Uh, I, see, I see a husband here. He's chuckling here. <laughs> that wouldn't go well. <laughs> that's not genuine. There's something wrong with that. Let me, let me use a different illustration. You know, we love associating with our favorite sports teams, whether they win or lose. We, our drummer here, we have uh, Roy, he's wearing a Vancouver Canucks jersey. And uh, hey, are, is, are the Canucks winning or losing? What's, what's their record this year? They're good or they're bad? Are they're, today they're good. Today they're good. <laughs> but you know what? We root for our teams in seasons where they're killing it and they are, they're, they're on a winning spree, yet we still wear the jersey even when they're losing and it's miserable and there's no hope of even winning the Stanley Cup in the illustration of using the Vancouver Canucks. If we do that with our favorite sports teams, how much more should we be willing to associate with the Lord when we know how the story ends? We know that he wins in the end. He has already won. Yet, yet why, why would we sometimes struggle with being willing to be associated with the Lord? What's going on? Why do we remain quiet? Well, sometimes it could be like what happened in this passage. There's a fear of a loss of social standing somehow. Or maybe we're concerned about the temporary persecution that we might experience in this life. Well, let me ask you a question. What, what do you value more? Do you value your social standing in this life or, or your relationship with Jesus? What's more important? Whatever the case, it's time to step out in faith. It's time to be more concerned about what God thinks of us than what people think of us. It's time to be more concerned with God's eternal approval over the temporary approval of people. And so wherever we're at in this area, I want to invite us to ask God to just search our hearts. We need to ask God to search our hearts and our minds in this area. And if we've fallen short in in any way, maybe if we've been ashamed of Christ for any way, we need to repent of that. And whatever your story is, we need to believe in Jesus, to put our faith in him, and we, we need to be, not be ashamed of being associated with Jesus. Let me pray and invite the worship team to come back today, and now, at this moment. Lord, we thank you for you, that, that you are a good God, that you are a loving God, that you sent your son Jesus to come and die on the cross and rise from the dead. And I thank you that there is incredible evidence that uh, all those things that I just said are true. Incredible 
logical, rational, scientific evidence that uh, those things are true. But at the same time, Lord, we recognize that in order to, in order to believe in you, it takes a supernatural act of faith uh, through your spirit to help us come to faith in you and help us to see you for who we truly are. So we pray, Lord, if there's anyone watching here who is on the fence, that you would supernaturally work through their hearts and their minds to, to call them to you. And we pray that they would be receptive to your voice. And we also pray that uh, the same for our loved ones around us, our family, our friends, coworkers, strangers we haven't met yet, whatever, that you would use us perhaps as, as tools um, to uh, present your gospel and that your Holy Spirit would just go um, and flow through us to, as, to interact with the people that we interact with around us. And uh, we pray that you would just, we, we, we would trust you to work in the hearts of those around us. And Lord, give us wisdom to know what to say, what not to say. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would work in the lives of those around us. Uh, Lord, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you that, that, that you call us, Lord, even when we don't deserve it. And thank you for hearing the, the testimony of Tony and how you worked in his life in a way that he didn't even expect. And we, we thank you and we praise you when, when we hear stories like that. And we just pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.